This is the Humerian Health Podcast. Spilling our guts for the well-being of yours. Humerian Health Podcast. We're back. Yay. I'm so excited. Another author interview, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, Excellent. We've found some of the best and most interesting people to talk to, Mm -hmm. and, and Dr. Defoe is no... No different, no. actually. Yeah. No. So it's interesting, right? Because for me, learning more about food and what to eat and thinking about it more on the um, paleo you know, d- diet or what I actually ingest, mm-hmm. um, didn't spend a lot of time necessarily other than farmer's markets and things like that, thinking about where my food is sourced and should I be paying attention to that. Right. Now, what's maybe doubly interesting and we're not, this is a um, public service announcement for our listeners, we're not going to get into this. Now, but I will say in the last mm, 18 months or so, I've become more interested in politics. But don't say anything. Can't go there. No comment. Right. Um, but in doing that, had started to hear and learn more about our food and supply chain and things like that. So it's kind of interesting in to see them converge. Yeah, to I mean, see them converge. Yeah. So yeah, very absolutely. interested in hearing what she has to say about her role in the FDA absolutely. and the research that she's done and how that was handled. And it's, yeah, it's a fascinating topic. Yeah. And as, as uh, for the listeners, we, we actually get our books and we review them. We have a process of review to make sure that we feel comfortable, first of all, bringing the information to you, but we also source it and make sure that it's solid information. So just so you know, ahead of time that we do go through those steps, because what you're, what we probably will hear in this interview, based upon what I've seen in the book, will be eye-opening, and in some ways, frightening information. But you talk about important. I don't know that it gets much more important than what we're about to hear. Mm-hmm. So without further ado, let's let's get to our interview with Dr. Defoe. Sounds good. This is Dr. Sean Benzinger with the Humerian Health Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, the author of Unsafe at Any Meal, Dr. Renee Defoe. Uh, it's great to have you with us. Um, looking forward to this. I think I've shared this with you before we even got on air, just simply because I think your book is um, right on. And I, I think the listeners are going to, well, they might love it. They might not love it because when they learn what you know, it might be very insightful. So first of all, thank you for joining us and um, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's, it's a pleasure to be here today to answer any of your questions. Well, we're ready to rock and roll. Uh, let's talk about the FDA. You, um, you were employed there for a period of time and you are, uh, you've taken early retirement and you wrote this book uh, called Unsafe at Any Meal. Sounds a little ominous. Um, what does that mean? Uh, well, first of all, I took the early retirement uh, 10 years ago. And so it's been 10 years since I've been following the line of research, which I was not allowed to do at FDA. So it was an ethical decision to retire. How interesting. They didn't allow you to follow it? I mean, the, the, for what no, would be the no, reason? They- well, they told me that uh, I couldn't publish my findings of inorganic mercury and high fructose corn syrup. And so uh, I felt like it was such a huge issue for public health that, you know, somebody needed to, to follow that line of research. And so I put in my uh, retirement papers as soon as I was able to. And uh, so that was the end of uh, 2007. So, and in 2006, I was trying to publish 
uh, I pretty much was made aware that I couldn't publish in 2006. So uh, that's when I decided to, you know, well, I guess I'm going to have to retire early in order to to fo- follow the research and publish the findings. And and I felt like the public had a right to know so, what was in the food supply. So that means that if someone works for the FDA and they do research on anything and they feel that there's information that would help the public's health, I mean, the 300 million people living in the United States, possibly other countries too, that you would be able to share information that would enhance their health for the future and you can't do that if you work for the FDA. Well, if the powers that be at the FDA feel like the information uh, is too sensitive or that the public wouldn't be able to handle it or, you know, it, it was contrary to the interests of the people that run the FDA. For whatever reasons, uh, the FDA doesn't release information that it deems the public should not know. Interesting. So if, in fact, it was information that they don't want to have released, even if it's at the benefit of the public, then it's not going to be released. That's just kind of the standard um, that's how they function. Okay. Yeah, that's a standard. Practice. Well, that's kind of scary, isn't it? I I didn't know that the powers that be weren't the people they represented. Well, the the FDA it has its responsibilities, and, and with regard to drug device and pharmaceutical regulations, if you will, and they adopt all the regulations that are set forth by Pharmacopeia, U.S. Pharmacopeia, pretty much and codify them in our uh, Code of Federal Regulations. So first of all, you have a trade organization, the U.S. Pharmacopeia, who makes the standard of what's safe and not safe in all of these areas that FDA regulates. So then FDA's responsibility for food is, is what, what's on the label of the product. And so that's pretty much, you know, they're, they're required to ensure that the labels are, are proper. They're not required to, to, to determine if the, if the ingredients on the label are safe. That's the manufacturer's job. So by law, manufacturers are required to submit to FDA their assessments on whether or not the food ingredients are safe. And then, you know, they can submit whatever they submit. And then that, it's just a process. Okay. Makes sense. Um, could you back up just a second for the listeners and kind of explain Pharmacopia just a little bit, what that means? A trade organization called Pharmacopia, and that's the basis of an FDA's application of their work? Yeah, what happened was before the FDA came into being in the 1900s, the exact date I have in, I wrote about in, in one of my book chapters. So it was many, many years before that where U.S. Pharmacopeia, which was the trade organization representing, you know, pharmaceutical products, medicinals, things like that. And they were the ones who were tasked with, you know, putting forth standards for safety. Snake oil, you know, all of that stuff came in, came under the U.S. Pharmacopeia as far as uh, safety standards. Okay. And then there were such problems with uh, uh, what was on the market. There were things that were killing people. So therefore, the Congress put forth the, the legislation to create the FDA, and that uh, came about because uh, there was so much stuff on the market that was not safe, and so that's why we have FDA now. And and you don't hear of too many people uh, dying within 24 hours of taking a medicine or or eating a food. It's a rare event, but uh, and that's that you know the the reason why we don't hear that happening very often is because uh, 
the products are are regulated in such a way so that you can you can't have things on the market that are going to kill people within 24 hours whether it's a medical device pharmacy or food right that that seems so, uh, wise <laughs> what they call it, the LD50 and all the other types of measurements right, that they have. Dose yeah, lethal dose, yeah, okay. So you can have things in the food that, that that might bioaccumulate over time and it might take 20, 50 years to kill you. Oh, that's nice. That's why we have Western disease. Western diet leads to Western disease. Yeah. I think that's an amen to that. But let's let's break this down a little bit more. So, in a, I mean, if I was going to encapsulate that, the Pharmacopoeia Trade Organization was it before the FDA had set up guidelines of what was safe and what wasn't safe, and then the FDA stepped in because for some reason their guidelines were not safe enough for the public. It was killing people. The FDA steps in. And helps uh, helps that process. So that's the first thing. But then they actually get their lead of information from the very organization that wasn't protecting the public way back when. Pretty much, yeah, that's pretty much it. And and uh, things haven't changed much. <laughs> I'm sorry. Does that does that sound silly? Well, it's important to realize that not all of the, even though U.S. Pharmacopoeia oversees the global, we're talking global here. Correct. Right? Correct. So. Other countries or, you know, the European Union, which is a block of countries, they can elect to take the legislation or the the standards uh, further and make them more stringent, and they do. For example, there are food colors in the European Union and the uh, United Kingdom for which if you put those food colors, which contain, may contain lead and mercury residue, if you put those in food products, then you have to put a warning label to parents saying this this uh, food product contains a food color that may cause hyperactivity in your kid. We don't have that kind of care in our society. Well, why, why not? Why, why don't we just follow a safe guideline like uh, Europe? Well, because we have the corporate interest, and oh. uh, that's just how it is. You know, our whole system is set up to to support uh, corporate interests. We have a free market economy where you can pretty much sell anything to anyone and say whatever you want. And we don't have enough oversight. You know, it, it could be years before there, the FDA recognizes there's something on the market that's not being labeled properly or that contains mis, misinformation or wrong labels, right? So... Uh, yeah, I mean, there's disadvantages of a free market economy that doesn't put public health first. And we have these huge health care costs and uh, Medicare costs that are skyrocketing because of all these diseases that we have because of the food that we eat. Okay. Now, over the <laughs> over the years um, uh, of doing a radio for about 21 years, I had the opportunity, the blessed opportunity to interview many physicians from Germany, France. England, uh, Japan, uh, all over the world. And it was uh, it was always the German docs that always would make fun of the Americans because he said, you know, you don't really care about your people, you just care about your money. And, um, and that was kind of the running joke, and they would deliver it to me in many different ways because they thought it was funny that Americans literally are more worried about whether they make a lot of money than knowingly harm other individuals, including their own family, and not protecting them. And I just thought that was uh, obscene. But, you know, um, let's move on to the other things because you have such um, 
such information in this book that I want to get to. Um, let's talk about uh, pesticides. That's frightening in its own right. We could have five shows just on that. But let's uh, please delve into that and what you found and, and, and what you're saying about it. Well, in the chapter on pesticides, I, I discuss uh, the different adult onset diseases that are linked to pesticide exposure. Um, I also discussed the pesticide data program that is uh, run by the USDA. And uh, and there's some disturbing, uh, um, you know, I mean, they determine what they're going to, what, pro- what commodity they're going to analyze each year. And there's some commodities that don't, uh, there are no samples taken for pesticide residue analysis for years and years. And, and some of these commodities, I don't want to go into too much detail because I want people to, uh, you know, uh, oh, they're I want gonna, them to understand deeply. They're going to they're gonna buy your book because this is, this is something we're going to be pushing for a while. And we hope that you'll consider, and we're already going to mention it, that you'll consider coming back. Uh, on occasion during each year because this is information they need to know. And um, I found that water sampling doesn't test for pesticides um, and they don't publish that kind of information. Uh, There's a lot of things because I had the unfortunate uh, idea of having a week-long program on water and then was literally shut down by the time it hit Thursday because they did not want any more information about our water systems talked about. And you're talking about food and water is kind of the end result of those things. But there's quite a few diseases that can be positively related to um, pesticide influence. And what are the, some of the most common diseases there? Oh, uh, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. Uh, well, there's some very good uh, clinical trial uh, data out there on what happens to humans as they're being exposed to low levels of pesticides over time. So, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, we, the data is in, it's, it's time to take the ethical approach, you know, for years, scientists were saying, well, let's take a precautionary approach since we don't have all the data, but it looks like things are uh, causing a problem. Let's, let's err on the side of, uh, safety. And so that's what the European Union has been doing, but, and even other countries, Russia, for example, they don't, you know, I mean, they they take the precautionary approach on certain uh, foods. Uh, that's why so many of uh, countries aren't taking our food products anymore or, or our commodities, you know, GMO or whatever. So uh, the time is gone, long gone for precautionary. We have enough information and data and studies. You know, uh, people have been carrying out work in, uh, in different countries, following up the research that I started that I don't have the funding to do. And we're finding... Uh, what's really going on, you know. Uh, the more processed foods you eat, the higher your heavy metal levels if you don't have a good diet of uh, whole foods, fruits, vegetables, and and so on, uh, then you're going to end up sick. So we, the mechanisms are becoming more and more clear that time is now to act ethically. We need to have the moral, take the moral high road here. Because I, there's so much data now. I, I agree. So in your scientific um, uh, experience, you believe there is plenty of evidence now to stand up against scrutiny from those that are in the industry that would not want this information out to be able to stand up against that scrutiny and mandate change. 
Absolutely. Okay. Without a doubt. That's And huge. I think if you've got a lot of scientists that were consumer advocates and food safety advocates in the same room uh, and b- brought in the experts on specific gene activity and, you know, uh, just all over the world, you'd, f- you'd find consensus. There's enough evidence. Fabulous. We, yeah. Fabulous. So let's talk about heavy metals. Uh, what are they? How are they getting there? And uh, you've kind of alluded to what it does, but what are they and what, how, how are they getting there? The heavy metals are those metals that, uh, for, for example, um, they're denser. And so uh, for, for an easy one to visualize is, is a lead weight on a fishing pole that sinks, right? right. As opposed to styrofoam, which is a, made up of d- different elements and they're not heavy and they don't sink. So heavy metals are uh, some very, very, can be very, very toxic and your body has no place for them. For example, lead displaces calcium and uh, in a lot of uh, functions and then then uh, what the more lead exposure you have then it sort of takes root in your in your bone tissue and so on and in your brain and there's neurological neurodevelopmental impacts on children associated with lead exposure like to Flint Michigan well we have a, a allowable lead up to 10 parts per million in some food ingredients so it isn't just water that's a source of lead there's also uh, food ingredients. So, so uh, lead is a, a key problem in uh, disrupting calcium metabolism, and that is linked to uh, you know uh, problems with the with bone density, osteoporosis, all of that. And then, uh, not to mention, you need calcium for proper PON one gene. Uh, expression, uh, you know, the uh, peroxidase, the PON1 gene, that's the enzyme that, that is expressed with that PON1 one gene, and that enzyme's needed to metabolize pesticides, organophosphate pesticides. So if your diet doesn't include enough calcium or if you're getting a lot of lead exposure because you're eating a lot of processed foods, then you're going to not be able to metabolize those pesticides that you're getting exposed to when you eat conventionally grown wheat or some of the other uh, products that have uh, organophosphate pesticide residues. So we spray it on our grain, let's say. We give that to the public. It is lead-heavy and pesticide-heavy, and we actually create something that the body then can't defend itself. Well, when we spray pesticides on the on the or add, you know, uh, powdered forms or whatever on grain, for example, mm-hmm. we're we're providing a source of exposure to the pesticides. Yeah. Now, that has nothing to do with lead. Okay, but uh, unless, of course, lead arsenate, which is a pesticide, but it's not in use that much. You know, I don't believe it's in use anymore. I think that was banned a long time ago, and so there might be residues in soil. So lead doesn't enter the picture there. Lead enters the picture when you are consuming highly processed foods with allowable lead levels huh. or drinking water contaminated with lead. Um, how about exa- can you give us some examples, uh, not by trade name per se, but what type of uh, packaged foods have higher uh, tolerance for lead? Well, packaged foods that might have, you would have to look at specific ingredients mm-hmm. uh, with allowable lead levels, and I cover that in Chapter 4. And I'll just name a couple here. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Monosodium glutamate is one. Sodium benzoate is another. There's many more. Um, well, that's the uh, top top ones, isn't it? Well, carrageenan, which is in a lot of organic foods, that has allowable lead. Titanium dioxide, which is found in many supplements, has the most allowable lead. How so, I mean, I'm just naming a few here. Yeah, but yeah. The bottom line is you want to avoid, to minimize your lead exposures, you want to avoid all ingredients known to have allowable lead, period. Okay. So the average American believes that FDA, other uh, organizations, agencies, have thoroughly and scientifically proven that what their guidelines are, are safe. And it sounds as though you're saying one of two things. The science proves that they're not setting guidelines of that, or they're intentionally being swayed to not organize uh, a change because of industrial pressures. Which do you think is happening, or are both? Well, it's more complicated than that because the the levels that are set now are based on old science. Yeah. Uh, back in the time when when risk assessment, the risk assessment approach was to look at individual elements and then say, "Oh, you can have so much exposure before you drop dead," or you know, uh, right? But the, but but what we ha- know that goes on now which we didn't know then, is that we have co-exposures. So it isn't enough to... to we don't even have a risk assessment process that, that uh, addresses all of the, to, the, sub, uh, the co-exposures to substances that become toxic over time. Sure. With sure. chronic exposure. So, so have some lead, have some organophosphate pesticide, have some inorganic mercury, put it all together, and then you have co-exposures. And which are and then you eat a bunch of uh, foods with high fructose corn syrup or corn sweeteners or fructose, and then those are impacting your gene behavior as well. So so you you you've got a lot of different pathways in which disease can occur. So there's not just one cause of any one disease, which a lot of Americans don't understand. You know they they've got all these organizations out there find the cure to this to, to that. Mm-hmm. The reality is there is no one cure, uh, and there's no one cause. And therein lies the nightmare. Right. Truly. It really, I mean, I get it, because you talk to different industries when, I've, uh, when I was doing radio on a consistent basis, and we're going to dig back into that, but uh, all of them will do the same thing and say, hey, we're within acceptable ranges. Next organization comes up. Industry and they say, well, we're within, um, you know, within those standards. And the next one, and the next one, and what I have to tell my patients is, well, here's the issue. You know, you dry clean over here, you eat boxed and canned foods over here, and then you uh, do this, and then you travel here, and then you add these type of creams on your body. And guess what? You just did. Now you've overcome your body, or you have overwhelmed your body with multiple exposures, but you don't know that. But the problem is, how do you hold those individual organizations accountable when they know they're contributing. And I, I get it. It's just, how do you approach it? I mean, I guess it's the um, awareness needs to be driven home at home for changes to occur, because I don't think we're going to see the uh, federal agencies do anything. Do you? Well, because of the fact that during campaigns, corporations are people and they can donate as much money as they want. and They have this influence on who gets elected. 
you know, our whole system has issues. It's not just the FDA. So we've got Agreed. a number of issues. Agreed. So really, the, the, as a consumer, what you can do is you can uh, fix the problem at home. And so what we've put together on our nonprofit uh, www.foodingredient.info webpage is a healthy diet tutorial that goes with the book. And the content of the book has been used successfully in three clinical trials in which all of the participants, whether they were college students or parents with learning disabled children, the outcome was the same. Uh, Once you learn and go through a series of activities and videos and so on and and read this book chapter by chapter and and survey your covers and and you go through a process that takes time to to become an expert on the food supply, This this tutorial is designed to make every mom and dad an expert on the food supply. Then you you will change your diet, as did everybody in the clinical trials, and you'll uh, know what not to buy and what to buy, and you will become healthier, period. So once people get control over their food supply in their own home, and, and even in a situation where there's a food desert, I mean, we did one of our trials in a food desert, and there's enough food out there, you just have to learn what to buy and what not to buy, you know? And how to clean your your uh, food if it needs cleaning, so or your drinking water or whatever. So you've got to minimize those exposures, and uh, uh, make sure that you're eating enough of the of the healthy food to be able to um, metabolize and excrete the uh, substances when they when you do come into contact. Fair enough. Hey, um, let's just talk real quickly, uh, zero in a little bit on something that is so commonly used. I mean, it's hard to even find things that don't include it. High fructose corn syrup. You have referenced it a few times today. Can you tell me a little bit more about your concern and and what you know about it? Well, the... uh when, when, when I first started investigating the amount of mercury in high fructose corn syrup, I thought it was coming, the, the only source of it was coming from the use of uh, chemicals that were made with mercury. So okay. the, these chemicals that were made with mercury, uh, that, I thought that was the only source of, of, the, of the mercury in the high fructose corn syrup. But since my retirement and since I've been doing all this research, I actually found out that there's another source of the mercury in the high fructose corn syrup. And it's because the manufacturers do, uh, intentionally add a mercury compound called mercuric chloride to the corn starch at the front end of the manufacturing process. And so that's another source of potential mercury you know, another potential source of mercury. So, and we did our a clinical trial in which we found that, that uh, college students who significantly reduced their consumption of all processed foods had much lower inorganic mercury levels than people who did not reduce all processed foods. So, and, it, and then we, saw, we found a direct connection between the amount of inorganic mercury in your blood and your and, the, and your fasting glucose levels or your sugar levels. So the higher uh, your sugar levels in the American population, because we analyzed CDC data on Americans, and so we found the same uh, uh, connection. So the more processed foods you eat, then you're going to have higher inorganic blood mercury levels, and you will have higher fasting glucose levels. 
So there's a direct connection between the highly processed foods and type 2 diabetes. Absolutely. And mercury itself is very damaging to the cells of the body. Right. And, 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 it, and it suppresses gene activity, important gene activity. Yep. So, you know, it, it, there's just, uh, uh, I didn't know any of this when I was still working at FDA. You know, I mean, some of it I knew, but a lot of it I didn't know. I found out in the 10 years since. So I wrote this book when it was right, when the time was right, when there was so much evidence, so much research. And, and even more, I'm, I'm in the process of writing an article, a commentary, and uh, the state of what we know now. And I'm finding all kinds of new information, new studies that have been published to further support what's and what I've been saying all that. You know what I mean? So the time Absolutely. is now. It's now. now. Yep. Yeah, I agree. But you know, you, you brought up something that's very important, and that is when are people who own companies that, that know what they're doing and the researchers associated with those companies that know what they're doing – what happened to our moral and ethical tie-down? I, I had the opportunity years ago to interview a guy named Jerome Kusserer, and that name might ring a bell. He used to be the editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine. And um, he said at the time, he wrote a book. I think, it, I think the book was called On the Take, but I, I may be wrong on that. But what was interesting about it is he said, he said of all the research in the United States clinically, 5% is legitimate and 95% is paid for or swayed by interests. And he said, when I leave, they're going to lift that. And that will mean that almost 100% of that magazine will be influenced one way or another, and that the idea of pure science might just die. Mm. And I don't know if that's exactly what happened, because I believe there are some researchers and those people that really do believe in human life and their own families and care. But that is very concerning, and it, it won't surprise me that over the next three to five years, you will continue. And I, and I, am, I hope that you are going to be okay with me calling you over and over again for more and more updates for our podcast because the public needs to know that they're not protected and they got one way out, and that is learning how to take care of themselves. Right. Well, I'd just like to add on this note uh, that even though the Americans and the government and the, and the universities that are uh, often influenced by corporate America, even though this, this research that needs this hard science isn't getting done here, you know, and he's mm -hmm. right that the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine is total, totally right. We don't have a lot of courage in our scientific community, uh, frankly. Used to. We used to. Well, I mean, not anymore. 1950s and 60s, um, those they were stalwarts. Yeah. They, they would not bend. They would not break. Yeah. Well, 80s, now, 90s, it fell apart. It's all, you know, there's not a lot of courage. And even people that there's a lot of talking about and complaining and, you know, nonprofits just whining, whining, whining. The actual <laughs> doing of the hard foundational research and, and supporting it isn't happening. In the U.S., however, and like he said, 90-some-odd percent is, you know, like totally junk. We're talking about, you see, read articles in the, in the uh, newspaper, they get picked up, and it's like, what is this junk, you know? What, how does this, you know, this is just more of the same old crap. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, the thing is, is that 
the the beauty of open access, in other words, we have all these journals all over the world, open access. Even the the United States government started the first open access journal. Thank God they did. Now, that was the last, that was courageous. And uh, it's it's a runaway freight train now because lots and lots of uh, journals all over the world now. Well, the good news is, is that... uh, when you publish and the information is accessible to other researchers, then if the U.S. isn't doing its job, other countries are still doing the job because Correct. they do care about their people. They, yep. they, they, are in a, they have a different system. It's not the free market economy that is based on money and greed and profit. They, they actually do have, some of them have single-payer health care. They have reasons to want people to be healthy. And so... Uh, these countries are doing the research to follow up. Mm-hmm. So, yep. so what will happen is all these connections will be made, and U.S. Uh, food and products will there will be no demand. You know, I mean, as our healthcare costs go up and up, and you know, we're just going to fall apart at the seams because Correct. there is no win-win here. There's absolutely no win-win. Not in a global marketplace. Nope. I agree. So, um, I'm sorry, I'm going to go back to high fructose corn syrup again. And the only reason why is, so we're basically saying high fructose corn syrup, if you are drinking something or eating something that has it, you are you're drinking or eating mercury. Well, it, it, you could be. We don't know that because nobody's going around and annually collecting samples. So, less people that annually collect, who actually collected samples of products right off the shelf and tested them for mercury was the Canadians, and they did it in 2010, a full year after the uh, corn refiners and the claimed that there, in the U.S. there was no mercury. They had changed their process. So a year later, can, Canadian researchers came in and, and, it, and analyzed foods that they'd purchased off the shelves, and they found mercury residues, uh, uh, in, in, in foods containing high fructose corn syrup. So the bottom line is is that we don't have anyone. That was done in 2010 there, and, and my organization doesn't have the funding. If we did, we would go out and we'd start uh, analyzing products on American shelves for heavy metals, those containing corn sweeteners as well as food colors and so on, and sodium chemicals, you know. So uh, if we had an annual report, of, okay, this year we tested these uh, uh, products, uh, and, you know, nobody's doing that. They don't, they don't, they're afraid of getting sued by the company, you know. That's right. Really, that's what's going <laughs> it's on. It's true. I know, I, yeah. I know, I've seen it before. I, yeah. I've, I, it is, it is embarrassing that we've got a system that's so afraid, and if you're a big enough company with enough money, you can literally make sure that people that have something to say don't say it, even if they've got the proof behind it, because yep. they really, really don't care. Right. And I'm sure, and you and I both know, if a year after they've made the agreement to correct the problem, a year later it still exists, you and I both know in the last six to seven years, the corn manufacturers didn't say, oh my gosh, you know what, we just got to do what's right now. <laughs> I, I, You and I both know that is not happening. Yeah. But do, just think of the torture and the torment of the kids that start on their, their first soda when they're nine months old, a year yeah. old. Uh, the kids in college and high school, they're sucking down five, six, eight, twelve a day. Yeah. And think of what that's actually doing to their overall health. Oh. And, and, and no one, I mean, 
honestly, it's frustrating. It's angering. That's it. We, we got two people angry interviewing each other <laughs> today because it's insanity. I mean, truly insanity. Well, it's a, you know, you, um, we have a system that's broken. And, yeah, uh, we do. Yeah, we do. But we are breaking the people that we care about. And that might be, the, I've always said that, unfortunately, health care is not health care, it's money care. And in this care. country, it is yeah. sick care. Yeah. And in fact, it's to maintain sickness. It's right. got nothing to do with wellness. That What's the old saying? If you have a heart attack, you want to be here to be saved, and then you go to Europe to get fixed. Exactly. And I think that's a really true <laughs> system. And that's all we got to do is we just, you know, save them here and ship them to another country to fix them. That's it. So um, anyhow, you and I could probably do this all day uh, because I think we align with our understanding. But more importantly, you've done a wonderful job of bringing the science and the information that we need. There's two things that we're going to want to do is make sure that everyone that's listening knows where to get the book. Where do they get the book? Well, Amazon.com, of course, there's lots of uh, vendors there. And uh, my publisher... uh, is uh, Square One Publishing, in, uh, and so you you know there you could go directly to the publisher. It's called Unsafe at Any Meal: What the FDA Does Not Want You to Know About the Food You Eat. And the reason why the title says that is because when you know when I tried to publish initially, the FDA said no, you can't publish this. So uh, that's why there's that title. Unbelievable. Yeah. And there's a website and a few other things, and uh, we're, we'll, we're going to be in touch with you if you will allow it. Uh, we hope that you will uh, come back as a guest and an honored guest of uh, question and answer for the public as we roll through the next few years. And, and please, I hope that when new information comes forward that you would be willing to drop us an email uh, or something that we could get on the phone, even for a brief moment, to share that information to make sure that it's right to their ears. Because as you know, it takes a long time to put a book together takes quite a while to update it and revise it and get it out, and we hope that we might be able to speed that and then get people to your book and be able to push things through. So um, thank you so much. It is a pleasure and an honor uh, interviewing you today. Thank you, Dr. Benzinger. I really appreciate your willingness to learn and, and, uh, and understand. Thank you. Appreciate it. Dr. Renee Defoe, the author of Unsafe at Any Meal, We're going to thank her for being on today. We thank you for listening, and have a good day. Wow. Wow. I was going to say I have— I'll say wow, too. I was going to say I have three words. Wow was all I could come up with. <laughs> That's three. W-O. Three letters. Come up with something break that yeah, down. Yeah, no. Wow. wow. Yeah. Unsafe at any meal. Mm-hmm. And truly, almost— any meal. The the corn syrup um, issue, high fructose corn syrup, I mean, uh, having mercury in it, our FDA not actually testing it anymore. Who does that to their people? Mm-hmm. As a country, who does that? Now, of course, if we contacted them, they'd have some politically correct answer, but there's no excuse for this. We have to count on Canada to do the research in 2011 just to have something else. You're talking pet peeve area for me. The idea that we can trust certain governmental agencies to protect us when, in fact, they're more protecting the uh, organizations that make the money from the production of the food that we eat is frightening. Mm-hmm. I don't get why we're paying tax to FDA and putting tax money into a lot of these um, individuals and organizations and really can't count on them to look out for the best interest of our own people. 
It upsets me. I can see can you that. Tell? Or hear that. Actually, yeah. I can see it because we're see it looking too. at yeah. each other yeah. across the Well, microphone, it, but yeah. it's just so untrue. Yeah. I mean, you, you think about high fructose corn syrup and we're thinking about mercury and injections with kids and we're blaming, we're blaming the injections and then we find out that possibly uh, uh, at um, some of the research areas of um, – uh, giving injections for our children. Maybe some of that information is being skewed. And then we have somebody come out and actually say, yeah, the information is being skewed. Now we see, well, what if the first time you start giving your kid a sip of soda because it's cute and they, they make a funny face when they're when they're seven months old or a year and a half old, and you, you don't even know that you're probably giving them mercury in, mm-hmm. into it also. You eat at fast food restaurants. What you're really giving them is MSG-loaded foods with lead in it. And you wonder why we have so many health problems in young kids, older folks, and how many, what's happened? Autism, ADHD, um, uh, Alzheimer's, uh, Parkinson's. What if that's the primary issue is mm-hmm. because we're eating chocolate that happens to have high fructose corn syrup? I don't know. Yeah. It's upsetting. Oh, we've invited her back. We're, we're going to have her back over a period of time. We're going to make sure that she's available for Facebook questions. She is She is very gracious in doing so. And I think the most important thing is she has been willing to sacrifice by taking early retirement to actually step out because she felt so committed. Now, if we had an entire department so committed to the individuals, including their own people, wouldn't that change us? You'd think. A lot. A lot. Actually, what I liked about... What she had to say, though, is that you actually can take control. I mean, so a lot of times I think people think about the government or the FDA or the problem set being so large. And she was uh, very practical and straightforward about what you can do for your family right. and your own health. Right. And so in that respect, there's hope. Right. So about the time you think, well, how could I possibly affect change in that kind of a structure? Mm-hmm. You, you can for your own personal life, your family's life community's life, which I think is what all of our listeners are, tr- are trying to do. Absolutely. So looking for f- concise information from people who are educated enough to know what they're talking about. And here's a good example. Now, years ago, I actually used you're to tell a story, aren't you? Uh, no, it's not, it's not a long one. <laughs> I used to interview books and, and I would do the Wait, interviews in the books. books. And yeah, I interviewed the book. Hi, book. <laughs> now, don't talk back to me. It's not like my wife, okay? Anyhow, um, that you're going to have to cut out. Un- unsafe at, I think it applies, doesn't it? Or vice versa. Your husband doesn't talk back ever? No. Okay, never mind. All right, anyway. unsafe. No, no, you're lying. Okay, all right. Unsafe at any meal, I would give a five star. That's the whole thing. I just would. This is one that I think everyone should have on their shelf, review and and share with friends, and as well as this podcast, because this we need to make it make it uh, make people aware and uh, do our jobs. Well, I think the next time that she comes to visit with us, I think we should have Dr. Bentley involved because yes, one of the things that she it. talked about was that not like what wait, what'd she say one there's not just one cause for any one disease that's the issue and he that's has his said thing. that so many times yeah so when she said that i about fell out of my chair yep. um so definitely in the future we'll have to see what happens when we put the two of them together in a conversation absolutely I think that'd and, be great. and that's so. the gig of industry industry kind of uh, rides on this edge that you can you can't say oh it wasn't the chocolate you can't prove that well that's true but once you do the chocolate and the soda and the this and the that and you add it all together and we get this response because of a specific genetic predisposition that your child or you have, well, there you are. And that's where they're hiding. Well, how about we just remove it because we know it could hurt our folks 
and prove that it's safe before it ever gets to us. That, to me, just makes common sense, but, you know, we don't do that. Okay, but we should stop talking about chocolate in that Let's category. keep going. No. <laughs> I think that's it for the day, but okay. it was definitely a great Excellent conversation, show. great book, um, very interesting. Yep. Look for them next time. Excellent. See you later. Amy Baker, Dr. Sean Benzinger. Humarian Health Podcast. Spilling our guts. For the well-being of yours. That's right. Thanks for having the guts to listen to the Humarian Health Podcast. If you have things you'd like to gut check, send us an email at gutcheck at humarian.com. Humarian.